Welcome to the Western Bell Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, The Obstacle is the Path. The talk was given by Chris McMaster and Debbie Hoagland Selabucky on September 3rd, 2022, via Zoom. Chris is co-author of the Conscious Parenting Workbook, whose practice includes her work as a personal chef and nanny. Debbie is an advocate for the wisdom of community and conscious parenting, who is author of Widening the Circle, Inspiration and Guidance for Community Living. In this presentation, they discuss some of the teachings on working with obstacles to the path, to serving God or existence in ordinary life, that were given by their teacher, Lee Lozowick. They also refer to teachings on working with obstacles and neuroses that were given by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and Arnaud Desjardins, masters from different traditions who also taught in the West. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Chris McMaster speaks first, and then Debbie Hoagland Selabucky. So hello to everybody. Some of you I recognize, some of you I don't, but thank you for joining. What drew me to this topic was that I listen often to tapes of my teacher, Debbie and I are both students of Lee Lozwick, who was a Western Vowel master and passed in 2010. So when we referred to him, we'll probably be saying Lee. So what drew me to this is I was listening to a tape of Lee's. And then during the day, during my work day, during my work week, his words kept ruminating inside of me and inspiring me to be a certain way in each moment. So the obstacle is the path is a Zen proverb. It's a koan. It works us from the inside out. It sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, like obstacles aren't normally a spiritual path. The tape that I'm going to be reading to you from is a tape from 1996, and Lee is giving a seminar in France. And so I'm just going to start with that, and then we'll stop and we'll talk a little bit about it. Part of my job is to help people establish a matrix or a foundation upon which can be built a life that is subsumed by God or permeated by God, in which we can serve that which we ordinarily are only attempting to realize. But in order to live such a life, we have to clear away the obstacles that block us from that. And the obstacles are many, and the obstacles are great. So for me, touching the reality that is truth is not good enough unless we can embody that reality in our day-to-day -day lives ongoingly. Some of you may be on your spiritual search because you've had an experience that has been so revolutionary for you that you have dedicated your life or some aspect of your life to understanding that experience in order to bring it back into your life in a way that is more substantial. Living such a life is not possible without a lot of hard work. But with a lot of hard work, 
living such a life is possible for anyone. End of quote. So usually when we're walking on a path or driving on a road and there's an obstacle in the middle of the road, we go around it. But on the spiritual path, the only way around it is through it. So I want to talk a little bit about what is an obstacle on the path. Some obstacles might be a neurosis that you're dealing with, such as self-doubt, perfectionism, vanity. And neurosis is a luxury suffering, so it's something that we don't necessarily have to suffer through. Physical suffering, physical degenerative diseases, disabilities, that's real suffering. Mental illness can be a real suffering. And all of those can be obstacles on the path. The context that I'd like for us to hold during this talk is that our work with these obstacles is but 1% of the process. The other 99% comes from grace. And we may be dealing with obstacles that feel so big that we really sense that only grace can handle it for us. Yeah, so the idea that we limit ourselves when we say, oh, I can't pursue a spiritual path until I fix this or get my life together in this way. With Lee, one time I expressed a really strong longing for something that wasn't showing up in my life. And he said, well, just use that energy directed towards prayer, or directed to Aikido practice at the time. Just use the energy that's there. You don't have to wait. You don't have to fix it. There was a student of a teacher, Arnaud Desjardins, and the student had a struggle with heroin. And he was like, well, I can't be your disciple because I have this addiction. And he had tried and tried and tried to rid himself of this addiction. And the teacher said, yes, you can. That's not a problem. And then once he surrendered to his work with the teacher, the addiction naturally left. That is a very powerful thing when we give ourselves over to grace and we allow it to exert a healing influence or we learn to live with the neurosis, to become friends with it. Our teacher was all about service. Just use that energy. I think Chilgum Trumpa was saying that it's just energy. The neurosis is just energy. So you just use the energy. You don't try to rid yourself to fix it. I'm going to share from Chogam Trumpa Rinpoche. He was a Tibetan master who taught in the West, in England, and in America. And this is from his book, The Sanity We Are Born With. I'm reading from chapter 19. He's speaking to a group of therapists, and he's being asked questions by a therapist. The question was, could you discuss the differences between meditation and psychotherapy? And Chogam Trumpa Rinpoche says, The meditative attitude accepts, in some sense, that you are what you are. Your neurotic aspects have to be looked at rather than thrown away. When you meditate properly, the notion of cure doesn't come into the picture. If it does, then meditation becomes psychotherapy. And then the next question was, how do you relate that to the use of the term neurotic? And Chogyam says, The neurotic aspect is the counterpart of wisdom. So you cannot have one without the other. In the ideal case, when enlightenment is attained, 
the neuroses are still there, but they have become immense energy. So our obstacles, as Debbie had said, contain a lot of energy for us for transformation. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I want to say something about the utility of knowing how it is that we suffer. When I first met Lee, I had met him at a dinner before a talk in San Diego where I live. And he asked me a lot of questions. And I had a burning question for him. And the question was, it was a real question. I said, what's it like to be married and be enlightened? And he scoffed and said, who said I was enlightened? Which was kind of his his way. (laughs) And he said, it's the same. You still have to deal with your shit and you have to deal with her shit. And I was so relieved to hear that answer. It was so grounding because in my mind, I thought I didn't know what enlightenment was, but I thought if I could become enlightened, maybe I could do this marriage thing. But his response to me, it just went right to my heart. And I went home that night, went to bed. I woke up the next morning and I was in complete shock. I had the realization that one of the problems in my marriage was due to a projection that I was putting onto my husband. And it was so stunning to me to realize that, that I could barely make it out of my bed and into a chair in the living room. And I sat there for a couple hours just in shock. And it dawned on me that that realization came from my interaction with Lee. And it was then that I knew this man is my teacher. I don't know what that means. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that he was my teacher. But what that did was it showed me how it is that I suffer. And because of that clarity, I then had a choice. Prior to that, I did not have a choice. Prior to that, it was hidden from me, the way that I suffered. And I was perpetuating my suffering because it was unconscious. And I was perpetuating suffering for him. So it's really important that we see the obstacle, that we become intimate with it. I have a friend who's in a wheelchair from a degenerative disease, and he goes around and he gives motivational talks. And he starts it out with, everybody has a disability. The difference between mine and yours is that you can see mine. And that's what an obstacle is. It's a disability. And so seeing it and knowing it and observing it is important. It's the first step. And I'm going to continue the quote from Lee. Quote, spiritual life is not about the rejection of ordinary life. In fact, it is about the spiritualization of ordinary life. Ordinarily, I don't recommend that people change their jobs or change their areas of interest in life or change their relationship. Simply that we transform what is, where we are here and now. So every neurotic element has its objective complement. For instance, if someone is grasping and greedy, tending to hold things very close and protect them, stingy would be an English word for that. That's the neurotic side of a basic tendency that runs the spectrum of possibility. The objective side of that or enlightened side of that might be someone who is an archivist in a museum in which their native tendencies could be turned into something useful and productive 
and valuable in society. Every neurotic manifestation has a non-neurotic complement. And part of spiritual transformation is about allowing us to train ourselves in a way that transforms our neuroses into something that is useful and serves God. But under most circumstances, our basic tendencies don't change at all. End of quote. So Lee goes on and explains an example using Fritz Perls, who was the founder of Gestalt Therapy. And he says, quote, Fritz Perls, before his transformation, was a bully, maybe even a sadist. He had an experience that shifted his relationship to people, end of quote. So in my master's program, which was spiritual psychology, we got to see a movie called, I believe it's called Gloria, and it's about one client seeing three different therapists, and it's taped. And one of them was Carl Rogers, one of them was Fritz Perls, and I don't know who the third one was. Can't remember. But anyway, we were asked to witness her therapies and then to vote which therapy do we think was the most effective. And then there was a video after that of her explaining which one was the most effective. Fritz Perls, he was so confrontive and ruthless with her. He just put her in a space of reaction. And it was actually a little bit uncomfortable to watch. But his ability to be that way in service to others would catapult clients into self-awareness. And Gloria, the client, said at the end, that that was the most effective because she got to see herself. So this is a really great example of a neuroses that's been used to serve. I think that's one of the values of a living teacher or a situation that's a little bit uncomfortable because when we put ourselves in a more challenging situation, then we get to see those pieces. And if we're not challenging ourselves, then we think we're doing really great. I remember a situation where I was supposed to cook a super elaborate meal and I ended up getting so frustrated with the servers and I just saw this part of myself and I was like, I should just leave spiritual work right now because (laughs) a spiritual student doesn't have this kind of reactivity. Then in my life, I had a kid and a husband, and I got to see a lot more. But that idea that we think it has to be perfect and that that's enlightenment. And I just wanted to share this quote from Chogam Trumpa again from The Sanity. He says, though many people think Buddhism is concerned mainly with some kind of mystical enlightenment, the true ground for Buddhism is confusion neurosis and pain, as Buddha emphasized in his Four Noble Truths. It is from the ground of neurosis that Buddhist psychology has developed. The approach of Tantric Buddhism or Vajrayana Buddhism, however, is not one of looking for a way out of this confusion or neurotic situation. Instead, we stop our motion toward finding cures and examine our present state of being and work backward, looking closely at the sources of our very desire for a cure. We must therefore start with what we are and why we are searching. 
Thanks. That's great. One of the things that the teachers in my master's programs used to say is the issue is never the issue. You will always have an issue. The issue is how you relate to yourself while going through the issue. And we can apply that. We can just replace issue with obstacle or neurosis. And so I want to continue with Lee's quote. He says, so very much like Fritz Perls, it is our job to take our tendencies, whatever they are, which under ordinary circumstances are designed only to serve our own ends, our own selfish needs, and transform them into tendencies that serve in a way that is compassionate and respectful of the other and serving of the other. In a lifetime of work, such a thing is possible and nothing else is worth anything to me. To me, the only thing worth struggling for is transformation in relationship to the divine. And whatever it costs is worth the price. I want to share a little story that I have about my work as a chef. I had been in business for about three years, and I was given a position, a job to cook for a family reunion. They were all in the same house at a big mansion in La Jolla. And we had to cook breakfast, lunch, and dinner for them. And not only that, there were three different diets that we had to cook for. So it was very stressful. The woman who hired me, I said, I need to hire some people. I need a staff. So she supplied a couple of people and I supplied two. And one of them I hired, not knowing her work and not knowing her at all. I just hired her out of the blue. And during the first two days, I could feel this energy from her where it felt like she was undermining my vision. Why being a chef is so positive for me is because I'm very creative and I have visions of what I want something to become. So I had all the menus planned out. I had all the details about the special diets and the presentation, everything to the T. But I kept feeling this undermining from her and this resistance to work with the team, to work along with us. It was extremely stressful. And I'm not the type of person to be super confrontational, but I like having authority. And so being a chef, it's a way of being able to have authority, but (laughs) I have to use it in a way that's not being a petty tyrant. I had to learn how to be a certain leader as a chef and I had to work with that neurosis. And so this one team player wasn't a team player. And I thought about talking to her at the end of the night by the second day. Finally, it dawned on me, give her some responsibility more than just team player, which went against my brain because my vision was my vision and there was a lot on the line. I had to pay these people who were under me They all had to get a tip. So everything had to turn out the way the client wanted it. But this instinct was so strong in me. And I knew that was the right choice, even though I didn't want to do it. And so I took her aside at the end of the second day before she went home. And I said, tomorrow, there's a chicken dish for dinner. I want you to be in charge of it. Do chicken the way you do chicken the best. And she looked at me like shocked. And I found out later that she was talking to some of the other team players, talking how I'm not 
doing my chefing right. I do things wrong. And so when I found that out, I could see she's surprised. That makes sense. And my instinct was right on. And so she went home. Next day, she was all in. She was all in. Her chicken dish was great. I took a chance. It worked out great. It normally would have been just the whole situation, even without somebody who was going against the grain, a very stressful situation, but it was very profitable. It was profitable in the tips that we got. It was profitable for my work. It was profitable for the project as a team. And it was after that job that I got bumped up with confidence that I could be the type of leader that I wanted to be as a chef. And that was a long time ago. And I just recently listened to this tape. And as I was listening to it, I started to remember that and realize, wow, it's about bringing our practice to every form that our life takes. So I'm going to continue again with Lee's quote. Now, most people have this idea that to seek God, they've got to have no other interests. They've got to really give their life entirely to it. They have to give up their family neglect their occupation, and somehow only seek God. But that's an error in perception. Many people will say to me when I say to them, are you practicing? Well, you know, I try to, but I don't have time. You know, I've got to earn a living. I've got to be with my children and my husband or wife. And I really don't have time to practice. And it's true. There are formal recommendations for practice in our school. Daily meditation daily study, daily exercise. But all of those formal practices are not at the heart at what it is to practice in this way. At the heart of what it is to practice in this way is to live one's life with kindness, generosity, and compassion, and to understand what it is that God is, and to bring that influence to whatever it is that one is doing, and to wherever it is that one is. So as you can understand by that definition, which I think is very clear, to say something like, I am too busy to practice, is absurd. There is no such thing as to be too busy, to be kind, or to be generous. No such thing as being too busy to understand what it is that is God. There's a story that you wanted to tell, Debbie, about Jairam, one of our fellow Sangha brothers. Well, I also wanted to take a moment and ask people where they find that practice in their ordinary life. Right now in my life, I'm working at a college so that my son can attend that college primarily. And some of the people have very different beliefs than I do. But I got this lesson from Ma Devaki. She was in service to a spiritual teacher. Okay, I'm serving God. I'm serving God when I go to work and I do my job. And that really inspires me to be there in the moment. And the story I was going to tell on Jairam, he was leading a workshop in Boulder when I lived there and I was a waitress. And he was leading this workshop about really fully giving your attention to someone And he asked us, try this experiment. And I was like, okay, going about my week. Yeah, sure, I'll try that. And I was thinking I was giving my attention to people. And then I had this one customer 
who was an older man. He was having lunch. Every time I would go to his table, he would start to talk to me and talk and talk. And I was okay being polite and acting like I was paying attention. And he would go on and on. And then I got it and I just stopped. I just dropped everything. I gave him my complete attention. And in two minutes, he was done. And I find there's lots of examples that enliven my ordinary life with practice. I think everybody has those. So if anybody wants to take a minute and share something like that, I think that it's valuable and inspiring to us. I'm a kindergarten teacher and I have 25 kids. And I teach at a public school. And they're being asked for a certain kind of discipline. And I have to teach them that. Because otherwise I can't teach these little kids what they're supposed to know at the end of the year. But in all that, I constantly have to remind myself to be kind and generous and compassionate with them. Talk kindly, not harsh. Yeah, so for me, it's just always there. It's always in my face and I always have to do it. And if I don't, then it just feels like I'm just living life halfway. I have a business and there's different levels of customer service you can get away with. There's a minimal level and then there's higher degrees of service you can do that maybe have less to do with taking care of your own interest and more with taking care of the customer's interest. So there's sometimes a balance to be found there, but I think it's really beneficial, especially with a small business where it's more personal in terms of practice, to cultivate a sensitivity to what someone else needs besides me, to have some empathy for the fact that the business they're running, a retail store is a different type of business than what I'm doing, but I'm supporting their business. So it's an aspect of practice just to pay attention to that, which is outside my own little small world that I live in. My question is in regard to relationships, and I do believe that our most difficult relationships and most painful circumstances are our greatest teachers and lead us to the greatest amount of growth. But my question is, where do you draw the line? (laughs) When do you finally say this relationship has become toxic, this person is causing more pain than I can handle in my life right now and move on? I've been through some really hard times with some people and I have come out having learned and having had to go into deep spiritual practice and meditation to deal with some of the emotions. And it has been great for my growth, but it's also caused a lot of pain. That's a really big question. And there's a lot of unknown factors. I do know that for myself, I'm very psychically sensitive and I'm about 85% monk. So I love being around people. I love being in relationship. But like you said, you need to retreat and take care of yourself and meditate. I do the same thing. I could live in a forest and be a monk easily. That's not the form that my life has taken. The form that my life has taken is to be in the world and to be in relationship. And I think when something becomes so toxic and you step away from it and you retreat and do 
your own practice that nurtures you, usually you can gain clarity. Like what are the factors that cause that toxicity? And I don't know what they are for you. And I think there is such a thing as letting go of friendships that don't serve anymore or relationships. But I can totally relate this idea of needing to nourish myself and regroup with myself through meditation or yoga. Boundaries are healthy. And sometimes we think we shouldn't have boundaries. This consideration of what Kristen Neff calls fierce compassion. So she talks about self-compassion and then she talks about fierce compassion, which doesn't have to always look loving and sweet. He uses the word kindness, but sometimes kindness is fierce. So I don't think we need to be afraid to make the boundaries we need. And I think, like Chris said, there's many factors. And if there's addictions involved, it's okay to make your boundaries. Everybody has to decide those things for themselves. But we don't have to be afraid to be strong and clear and make our boundaries. Thank you. That was helpful. Yeah, thank you for your vulnerability. We all have our own perspectives on (laughs) life's tribulations. For me, I've needed to also look at my issues, how I contribute to a problem. Just to be clear, I've had a uh, part in the difficulties that have happened in relationship. But as I get clear about that, then it's important to look at the situation and see if the other person is also willing to take responsibility. Because without being able to grow together, I just don't see how relationships will work out. For me, it's been important to have some kind of support, to have people who are able to be objective that I can bounce off of, won't let me off the hook so easy, but also will support me. Chris, you were talking about Fritz Pearls. At certain points in my relationship, we've done some couples work, and that was really helpful. And then at some point in relationships, they just have run their course for some people. And that's a hard place to make that kind of transition, but sometimes necessary. Thank you so very much. Thank you for your question. I want to say again that the work that we're doing with our obstacles is 1%, but that doesn't mean it's not difficult. That doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable. But imagine if our 1% feels that strongly for us to go through the process of really looking at our obstacles and how we cause suffering for ourselves and others. How much more, the 99%, how powerful grace is in our lives. So when Lee's talking about, it's not an excuse really to say that there's no time to be kind, generous, and compassionate. We also have to be compassionate and kind and generous with ourselves when we miss the mark. When we walk away from a situation and we go, wow, I wish I'd handled that a little differently. It's all about how do we deal with ourselves while we're going through that issue. 
I don't ordinarily do this, but I want to push back on something you're saying in terms of the 99% and the 1%. I'm a student of Lee's as well. And I don't know where your idea of the 99%, 1% thing comes from, but I remember one time he was with his student Porna who also had become a teacher. And Porna's students were in the room as well. And Lee was saying, we can help you, but that's just 1%. And 99% is what you do with the help that we give you. They're not talking about grace. So I don't know what you mean when you refer to grace. And that's a term that people often refer to that I don't have a connection to. But I do really like that distinction. It's not the obstacle, it's how you are with it. And that does seem like the crucial piece for me in my experience over many years of trying to implement teachings in my life. There's not going to be some point at which there are no obstacles. (laughs) It seems like the greatest obstacle is myself and that's never going away. So how am I going to be with that? And then the last thing you said about compassion for ourselves, that's really key for me. If the obstacle is not going away and the obstacle is me, I have to be compassionate with this one who is here. Somehow fighting it and beating it to death, like trying to cram it into some shoe it doesn't fit is just a useless project. But I don't know if you could explain a little more what you mean about the 1% and 99% and grace. I really appreciate that you did push back. I think that this forum should allow for that. So thanks for that. I just remember hearing that, but maybe it's that our 1% is 99%. It is that much. We have to go all in. That's what I remember Lee talking about, that grace will meet us at our 1%, but that our 1% isn't necessarily easy or a small effort. If you're speaking from your own experience and your own experiences that you do a little bit, but then grace does a huge amount, maybe you could just describe what that is. I assume you're saying it because that's what your experience is. Well, I do remember many times, but one in particular where I was at a wedding and for some reason I was torn up inside. There was so much grief and so much emotion arising for me that I did not know what to do with it. I wanted to be at the reception, but I didn't want to be at the reception because of this. I wanted to retreat. I wanted to go inside a hole and be with myself. I decided to take my mala beads and put them under my shawl so nobody could see and just do them as fast as I could and be at the reception. And so I was standing there, the feeling that kept coming up was, I don't belong. I don't belong. Why am I here? And I didn't know where that was coming from. And even as I say that now, I can feel this ache in my heart. And I remember just staying with it, just staying with it, but really feeling at such a loss, like I was not working with it. Nothing's changing. And I was standing by myself and I looked over because I felt someone looking at me and Lee was looking at me. And his glance was so compassionate and so with me right there. And it just lifted. 
And two young students came over and started talking to me. And I was like, just keep talking. I didn't say that, but inside, like, just keep talking. Don't ask me how I'm doing. <laughs> and there was this unraveling inside of me, emotionally, this unraveling of this very tight knot. I didn't know how it was happening, but it was happening. So the 1% for me felt like my 99%. But Lee's glance, it undid it. It undid it. But it went on for a while, the unraveling. It wasn't instant. It was from a good part of the reception. So thanks for asking. Thanks, Chris. There's that principle we talk about a lot, that if you take one step towards God, God takes 10 steps towards you. But all these numbers are approximations, like in the fourth way work, they say your attention should be 75% internal. And I think these things are true in principle, but it's probably not good to get too hung up on what the exact numbers are. They're more qualitative than quantitative. The experience of grace, I think you can even have that experience and believe in that if you don't believe in a deity or a God, you don't have to put that label on it. I find if I'm willing to go out of my way or get off of something, like if I'm arguing with someone and I make the small step of just not perpetuating the argument, <laughs> which feels like a very big step in the moment, right? Sometimes that's enough to just cause some breakthrough in communication. To summarize that point, not completely, but the one thrust of it is the things that feel so big to us are really not that big. And when we do them, then the universe responds. And in terms of obstacles, obstacle that I'm facing on my path, it seems so huge. When I keep looking at it as an obstacle, it's very big. And the more I'm able to see it as just part of what I have to do, don't add drama to it, just do the thing, it becomes much smaller. And then in retrospect, it's like, oh, why was I so resistant about that? Why was I making that such a big deal? That's what your comments bring up for me. Very useful. Thank you. I think when I do everything I absolutely can towards a situation or towards an evolution in my life, exhausting everything creates in me a certain vulnerability. So then I'm way more receptive to the help. In situations in my life where I'm like, oh, I got this. Oh, I can handle it. And then the divine's like, oh, you think you can handle this? Let's throw in something else. <laughs> and then when I really engage and I'm like, hey, I've done everything, it creates that necessity for the divine to meet us. I love what you said, Debbie, because I've had that experience too, where I'm just at my wit's end. Like I've surrendered. <laughs> Can't do this. Help. If only it does that for us and we can ask for help in a real vulnerable space, then there's receptivity. And, you know, we're so good at hiding from our obstacles and hiding from our neuroses. So there's a few questions that I use on myself, especially if I'm in a certain situation and I don't know what the right answer is, or I'm leaning towards a response, but I'm feeling like it's not the right one or I'm not sure. And the question is, what owns me right now in this situation? And in life, whatever it is that owns me, motivates me, motivates my action, and all of this usually is unconscious, but just asking that question can slowly uncover how it is that I suffer. 
how it is that I'm causing suffering. And another part of that question might be, what is it that manipulates me to act in certain situations? Or am I riding the horse right now? Or is the horse riding me? Who's steering the wheel? Is my vanity steering the wheel? My perfectionism? And I think it's really important to be really curious about the obstacle, about our neuroses, about our suffering, without judgment, which is the practice of self-observation, to be curious about what is rather than how can I change it. Quote, so a lot of this work has to do with, in the beginning, a shift in perspective. And the shift in perspective has to do with ceasing to assume that the entire world revolves around us personally. And to begin to see that the world as it is, is a mass of energies and circumstances and situations and moods all moving in and out, weaving in amongst each other. And that we are simply a part of that immense universal movement. From there, something real is possible. Without that, everything we do is going to be designed by ego to only reinforce our separative and defensive position. So in order to realize what it is I am talking about, all of life has to become a field of practice. If you make your practice distinct and exclusive from your ordinary life, you'll always be caught in a crisis of your love for your family and your obsession with work or your art, or whatever it is. We have to stop that kind of polarization between that and our desire to refine our lives through some kind of spiritual process. And that's the crisis. That's the war. The internal war that most people are in are fighting. But there needn't be such a war because that whole crisis is a function of a misunderstanding of a very narrow perspective so we don't even have to change the way we perceive. All we have to do is allow the horizon of our perception to open up and we will begin to see naturally without any effort whatsoever. And that's the first task of the spiritual process. It's not to get some heroic practice to meditate 10 hours a day, end of quote. For me, It seems what he's talking about is having a certain intention when we know we have a narrow perspective, we all have narrow perspective, but holding a certain intention and lifting our perception, like what he says, all we have to do is allow the horizon of our perception to open up to the possibility that there's something else, that there's another side to this, or that there's a way to serve beyond my obstacle. So this reminds me of chaos theory, which states that the direction of a tornado and the path of a tornado and the speed of the tornado can be influenced by the flutter of a butterfly that happened a week ago. And so even though we are living in a universe that is a mass of energies, circumstances, situations, and moods all moving in and out, weaving in and amongst each other, and that we are simply a part of that immense universal movement. The work that we do, what we're talking about today with our obstacle, is revolutionary. It's a revolution inside of us to be able to really be with our suffering and to transform it. And we do have an effect on the people around us. We do have an effect on 
what's happening in the world. I think it was a talk that Regina gave where she had interviewed Barbara. I forget Barbara's last name. She's a Buddhist monk. So you're talking about Regina Sarah Ryan and Barbara Dubois, who's the Buddhist practitioner and teacher. And one of the things that Barbara said was, when you meditate, you're being an activist. That's the point I want to make about the flutter of the butterfly, the flutter of our inner practice, our inner world, our inner work. I think there's a place for physical activism, but then there's also, like you're saying, the acknowledgement that what we do internally does have an impact. I remember reading Amazing Grace by Kozel. It's about inner city New York and the poverty and the oppression. It's an older book. I read that and I was like, I have to do something right now. I have to go physically do something. And then a few days after I finished the book and I was struggling with this, I heard an interview with him on NPR and he was asked, what can people do? And he said, people can pray. It was like, okay, that's the answer to my question. I still think there's a totally valid place for physical activism, but you were quoting Arnaud Desjardins, or you were going to quote him about being internally active and externally passive. Yeah, that's the quote. To be inwardly active with what's arising, with the obstacle, with the rage, but not acting it out. So inwardly active, outwardly passive, which creates quite a combustion inside and builds up a lot of energy. If you can sit with that and still be working and and going throughout your day, that's the ideal of practice is that you can hold these energies and be a witness to them, an enlightened witness, just like children need to be witnessed and not make a judgment about it or a identity with it. Children, when they throw a tantrum or when they go into extremes, they go to this extreme and then they go to that extreme. And often what we do as adults is we label them in one of those extremes. And their animation is actually their work to find their middle. But as adults, we label them and we say, oh, he's impatient or he's unable to do this. Because in that moment, the child is unable to do that. But then the child might swing to the other end of the pendulum and he's trying to find his middle ground. We're doing the same thing inwardly. We have extreme emotions and extreme reactions inside. And if we can stay inwardly active, but not act on our rage and cause suffering for other people, we're doing the work. I'm going to finish the quote. This is the last part of the transcribing. Quote, Gurdjieff said there is always a war between yes and no, and that the task of man is to be able to act in spite of this war. So there's many levels in which there is two things moving at the same time. There's this inspiration for spiritual transformation, we could say, moving very actively, very dynamically. And then there is the movement of ego which doesn't want spiritual transformation, which moves at the same time, but in the opposite direction. And most people are caught between those two things and paralyzed. But it's obvious to most of us when what action is just and right and what action is inappropriate and selfish. 
If you have some money and a friend comes to you wanting to borrow money and the friend is reliable and you know that they need the money for their family or a car for work, it's something necessary. Not like to gamble or buy their mistress a new coat. But by tendency, you are very stingy. You know it is right and just to loan them the money. But because of your tendency, you don't want to. So there's two things going on at the same time, very clear, and there may be a kind of mental paralysis between the two. But at the same time, you know which is the right action to take. But in the beginning, you have to be willing to act in the way that you know is right, even if the mind is raging with conflict, with paralysis. Over time, maybe even months or even years, if you act with what you know is right action, you begin to convey to ego, ego is what creates confusion, insecurity, and doubt, and so on. If you act rightly with consistency, that which is you essentially begins to convince ego that you won't be manipulated, that it cannot continue to control you, dominate you the way it always has. Adults are run by ego. Ego believes its job is to run us. If we convince ego it can't run us anymore, it's going to do whatever it is we allow it to do because it doesn't want to lose its position. End quote. Prior to this, he talks about ego as being like a, I think the word he used, a French word, courtier, which is a minister to the king. And that ego is like that, and the king is God. And that's what he means when he says, it's going to do whatever it is we allow it to do because it doesn't want to lose its position. So what we want ego to do is put its power and sophistication in service to the right choice in every moment. And if we convince it, we are going to act rightly anyway, no matter what it does. Pretty soon, it will start creating right action itself. Because the one thing that ego wants in its assumed autonomy is to stay in the favor of the king. And God is the king. And we essentially, not we under the illusion of separation, are none other than God. So that's the way to begin to realign ego to serve instead of to manipulate and dominate. But this is very much like raising a child. When a parent makes a boundary for a child, if that boundary is not kept, the child will learn that he or she can manipulate the adult. And I just want to go back to something real quick where he says, and part of spiritual transformation is about allowing us to train ourselves. So I think that's very key there, allowing us to train ourselves in a way that transforms our neuroses into something that is useful and serves God. But under most circumstances, our basic tendencies don't change at all. End of quotes. So when you're talking about obstacles, are you referring to this overriding sense of ego that considers itself to be separate? Are you referring to situations that come up in our lives that are trials, that are real difficult for us to deal with? Are you referring to our personality characteristics or neuroses? 
seems that would be pretty important to see what it is that we animate. Like in the Aeneid types, they refer to different personality types like anger and envy, pride and fear. Are you referring to those kind of things as obstacles? I think it can be all of the above. It depends on the context. I don't think our neuroses has to be an obstacle, but it can be. I think it is those tendencies, and then it depends how we relate to them. Whatever our tendencies are, the better we know ourselves and we know those obstacles, and we don't personally identify with them, but we go, Oh, I have this tendency. I have this obstacle. I'm stingy, like he was saying. So then it's like, how do I want to choose to work with that obstacle? Because it's not going to go away. It's not like if I act kind, that that thing is not going to be there anymore. That is part of who I'm thrown to be, whether it's through nurture or nature. (laughs) But the more we aren't afraid to see those things... Well, there's energy behind those things. When you see that you're stingy or fearful or angry or whatever, and that's the pattern. You see that in yourself and realize that's part of my personality makeup. It's a key part. Then to work with that would be to be with that, to see that, and to allow the energy of that to work on you. What would you say to how to work with that? Well, that's the practice of self-observation without judgment. Because if you spiral into a whole adding of meaning to whatever that tendency is, you actually are going to lose the power of it. If you go, oh, I have this anger. And then if you defend, cover up, take all this energy into preventing that anger, you're going to actually lose the potential. Chilgum Trumpa was saying there's energy there. So don't try to resist the energy of it, but take it as energy, not as this means I'm a bad person. Whatever those stories we make about the neurosis. One time I got feedback from Lee and I spent over a year dwelling on this, doing all kinds of drama. And then I did a sashin. And in the middle of the sashin, I was like, oh, He just said these two sentences. That's it. It was these two sentences. They did not have all this meaning that I put on them that was actually keeping me from my work. I've worked with a lot of children and mothers, and there was a situation where a mom got reactive and she just immediately went into breakdown. And I could see that the child was, I want to be connected to you. Like the child was done with what had happened. But the mother was in so much reactivity that she was no longer present or available. It's what we do with the neurosis. I think it's such a useful place to be able to see how we are sometimes for other people. It's so useful to our work. And at the same time, you don't want to fall into the pit of indulging criticism about it and guilt. But a certain type of remorse is so useful because it's a broken heart when we see that about ourselves. When the heart breaks, it breaks open and we're given choice then to choose to be different. 